0: Let's pray before we jump into the God's word this morning. Father God, I thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. Thank you that we can just meet freely like this and enjoy spending time singing to you and uh, hearing from your word. And I just pray, God, that uh, during these next few moments, God, hear that your Holy Spirit would teach us, lead us, and guide us that um, the words that come out of my mouth will be from you, Father, that you will be honored and glorified by this time. We thank you for your word, how it's living and it's active and it, it does wonders in our lives, God. So we ask that you would um, use it in our lives this morning, in your son's name, amen. Before I start, I just realized there's some faces I don't, re- I don't recognize out there and if I haven't already introduced myself, I'm Rob, I'm the new pastor here. People come on and say, oh, I've been here before and things like that, it doesn't help because I haven't been around either very long, um, but it's great to see you all here this morning. Um, Have you ever wondered what your life calling is? You ever thought about that before? What your calling in life is? I looked it up. Webster's Dictionary defines calling as a strong inner impulse towards towards a particular course of action, especially when accompanied by conviction of divine influence, okay? A life calling is basically what a person feels that they are to do with their life, Uh, I went in and I actually go, you know, whenever I want to find out anything, I just realize I just need Google. So I went to Google and I Googled life calling, just out of curiosity to see what would come up to find my life calling. And here's here's what I got. Just on the first page, I just typed in life calling. I got, here's the places I could have gone to. First one was, uh, what are you meant to be doing? Find your calling. And that was Oprah.com. Okay. (laughs) Life Calling, from the HuffingtonPost.com. Next one was How to Find Your True Life Calling in Life, Time.com. This this is actually the first page. These are the ones that came up right away. 20 Ways to Find Your Calling, Forbes.com. And my favorite, Find Your Calling, Five Steps to Identify Your Calling, from TinyBuddha.com. So there's a lot of things out there that would help us to find our calling. Yet as followers of Jesus, I believe we are called to live, live, called to live a life that's much bigger and grander than what this world tells us we're to live for. Much bigger. Okay? The Bible tells us many things about what the calling of a follower of Jesus is. My favorite, though, is found in 1 Peter 2.9. And we looked at this just a few weeks ago. It says, um, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light now according to this verse and according to this as followers of Jesus it says we belong to God okay we're his possession and our purpose or our calling is found in proclaiming to the world his greatness, okay? That's our calling as Christians. No matter what we do for a job, no matter where we live, whatever, that is our calling, to proclaim the greatness of God. Now, these past weeks, uh, we've been looking essentially at how a follower of Jesus actually does that, and we've been looking at that, how they do that in the context of specific and different types of relationships, Specifically, we looked at um, how they may uh, be mistreated in these types of relationships, okay? And we've looked at how we, like in different relationships, like being married, like in husbands and wives and with bosses or with uh, people that uh, are under us or over us or different places, we've looked at how are we supposed to function as believers, especially when when we're suffering or we're being mistreated for being committed to living a life that honors Christ. See, the premise has been that the way a follower of Jesus responds to being mistreated because of their commitment to Christ will compel. That's the whole idea. How we respond, it's supposed to compel people to be able to see the goodness and the grace that is in us because of who's in us, because of Christ. We've looked at how this plays out, like I said, with governing authorities, with servants and masters, husbands and wives. And now this morning in verses 8 through 12 of chapter 3 of First Peter, we're going to look at how this plays out in relation basically to anybody and everyone that would mistreat us or treat us with hostility or insults due to our commitment to Christ. You know, I really believe that, especially we are entering even more so into this, I believe that when we are committed to living our lives completely surrendered to Jesus, we will at times face persecution. And I really believe this is going to start heightening. I really do. I really believe, I'm not, not, I'm not some guy that's like, okay, get ready, the apocalypse is coming kind of guy. But I really believe the more that as followers of Jesus, we decide to stand up for what we believe And not like we've talked about in the past weeks, not in a rude way, not in a way that dishonors people, but really stand for Christian principles that we are going to come across times of persecution. The apostle Paul even confirmed this when he wrote to the church in Philippi, and he told them this. He said, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And we're going to be looking, by the way, as we go deeper into First Peter, we're going to be looking, he's just going to be hammering on this, this whole idea of suffering and how do we deal with it? And it's coming. and How do we live with that? How should we respond? So we're going to be looking at that more and more. Um, but so that's why Peter is going to hit us right now with kind of helping us to understand the importance of a believer's relationship with other believers. He knows it's going to be tough. He knows things are going to be tough. He knows it's going to be hard to stand up for what you believe. So he's going to start off right here saying, this is so important that you understand your relationship with other believers. So let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Remember, once again, now Peter's no longer, he's not addressing specific groups of people anymore like slaves and masters and wives. He's talking about to all of us now, okay? He's talking to every believer, every follower of Jesus because Peter knows that in order to be able to stand firm against the things that we're gonna be, stand firm in our faith against the things that are gonna be coming at us, he knows that in order for that to happen and for us to be able to mature in our faith, that followers of Jesus need to rely heavily on each other. We're going to really need each other. We're going to need the support and the encouragement that only comes through authentic Christian community, where people are devoted to Christ's teaching and to loving one another as Christ instructs us to do. Remember, in Hebrews, it says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, what Peter's saying here is that as followers of Jesus, you and I need each other, okay? We need others' help to be better at loving, and to be better at doing what is right and what honors the Lord. It's, a, it's vital. It is so vital that you and I are doing everything possible to gather with other believers for encouragement and support. And I'm ta- not talking about Sunday morning. I'm talking be- well beyond Sunday morning. And many of you know this concept very well. Many of you in this room have experienced how powerful it is to have other people in your life to encourage you and to strengthen you, especially When times are difficult, now in verse eight, Peter lists these five essential kind of virtues that really bind Christian community together. He says these are these are like like characters or inner qualities that are really needed for us to be able to respond to life in a Christ-like manner, especially when we encounter opposition due to being a follower of Jesus. Even I hate to say this, but even if that Comes from that opposition comes from within the Christian community. And unfortunately, it sometimes does that. Some of you uh, have experienced that before. So let's look briefly at the, I just want to look at these really quick, these five virtues. And as we do, I, I, what I would like you to do is kind of think about a picture, try to get a picture in your mind of what each one of these might look like. I was tempted to go on Google again and get pictures, but then that would have been my pictures for you to think about these virtues and kind of what they look like in your life. And also think about, are these, these come of these virtues, are these, am I lacking in some of these? Are these some of the things I really need the Lord to help build me up in? So let's look at some of them. The first one, he says, is to have unity of mind. To have unity of mind means to have the same mind. Unity of mind, or in some of your versions, it says like-mindedness is what unifies followers of Jesus together. Now that, that unifies us, despite race, despite color, dis, despite backgrounds, despite political views, despite our age. When we have a unity of mind, we can come together. Our hope and our dream, for my hope, I know mine is, and the others in this church, is that we are a church that's got every color, every age, every political background. <laughs> that's okay, by the way. We can't have that. I don't. We don't want a church where everybody's like, yeah, we all agree about the same thing. No. That's not, what, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that, just, that we can be all these different flavors and all these different things, but we can have a unity of mind because how boring would it be if we all thought the same way? Unfortunately, a lot of churches feel that way. We love to have you here as long as you're Republican. We love to have you here as long as you believe exactly like we do about all the social issues that are out there because this is exactly what we say the Bible, think, think the Bible thinks. Now obviously we believe that the Bible says very specific things about a lot of all these social issues but we're crazy to think that there is this exact one answer of how should we should respond and what the Bible is a wonderful book that gives us the truth but we need to be able to come together and talk and pray together and even get this disagree with each other we need to be able, I hope that there's someone sitting in the same row of you with you right now that completely disagrees about you, about of, of certain social aspects, about different things, about how to handle having friends that have, you know, maybe, uh, you know, sexuality issues that are different than yours, all these different things, uh, political issues, all of them. I hope you have someone in your row that disagrees with you, not unbiblically, but within a biblical frame, framework. Because you know what? That's going to enable you to, as you talk to that person, to understand what it means to have unity of mind about the important things, not the things that don't matter as much. Okay? This implies, what this unity of mind, it implies a willingness to conform our goals, our needs, and our expectations to the purpose of the larger community. Unity of mind is a wonderful thing, but it's not a robotic thing. Believe what I say. It's a wonderful thing. It's a sloppy thing. It's a messy thing, but it's a wonderful thing. Next one. Next is sympathy. I won't spend as much time on the rest. That was just kind of my soapbox one. All right, sympathy. Sympathy is, a feeling, is feeling compassion or sorrow or pity for the hardships that another person encounters. Look at Roman, Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says this. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Not because they agree with you. Not because we see things eye to eye, but no, rejoice with anyone, with these people that are rejoicing and and weep with those that are weeping. That's a big one. Brotherly love, he says, is the next one. This refers to warm, affectionate love that you and I would have, like say a sibling, a brother or sister that we have that we're really close with. That's what he's talking about here. Once again, in Romans chapter 12, this time, and verse 10, I mean, he says, love one another with brotherly affection, I love that he says here, outdo one another in showing honor. I love that. Well, how, how well does that person love? I remember when I was young, when I was in high school, and when I kind of started to get my life act together spiritually, I remember thought, okay, how do, I mod- how do I go after being a Christian? How do I do it? I remember I saw the guy in the youth group, I was in a very large youth group, and I picked out the guy after a while watching him, who seemed to have his spiritual act together the most, and I said, I'm going to beat him. I know that sounds kind of weird and carnal and not, but but what it does I needed I needed something I needed to be spurred on. I needed to want to be like him but really more like Jesus. So outdo one another. He says be better at it not because you're performing but because you want to be that kind of person. You want to have that inner that inside of you, okay? Next one he says is to have a tender heart. Okay? To have a tender heart is to be compassionate. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on, then, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and meekness, and patience. Once again, even with people that completely disagree with you. Humble mind is the next one. A humble mind literally means to be bowed down in your mind. Okay? Get that picture? Of your mind is bowing down the way you think. In Greco-Roman society, only those, <coughs> excuse me, of degraded social status were humble. Okay? Humility was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame back then. It was, an, it was like seen as an inability to defend yourself. Yet we've seen how Jesus really takes that idea and he flipped it on his head, didn't he? Especially when, and showed us humility when he washed his disciples' feet. Here was the master and showed us what true humility was. He washed his disciples' feet. I love Ephesians chapter four, verses one and two says this, it says, I therefore, this is Paul, Apostle Paul speaking, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of, here's that word, calling to which you have been called. And look what he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And we can see these five virtues or inner qualities are essential for Christian community, which is an essential part of our spiritual growth. This is one thing that I've told you guys that attracted my wife and I to this church. And I've talked to other people about it also. There is a sense of love and care for one another that you guys got to understand that have been here a while is unique. You got to know that. That is not a universal thing in all churches a sense that we want to do everything possible to love and care for one another, not just to be friendly, but to truly love and care for each other. We sensed that. That was very, very attractive to us. And I know it has been to other people too. It's a powerful, powerful thing. True community is amazing. And when you really experience true community, I love how Al, uh, Al, Al Harrell, he sends his, uh, out emails all the time, especially for the men's, men's group, and he always signs it, his band of brothers. I love that. I love that, because I know exactly what he's saying. I know exactly what Al's saying. He's saying he has experienced this amazing thing of being together because, get this, Al has also, sorry, Al, we didn't talk about that, also, <laughs> uh, your wife's not here. Oh, darn, she's too. Okay, um... double-barreled, I'm I'm going to get it later, but they have experienced some difficult times in their lives like most of us have. We've all done stuff where where we've needed other people, and I know him, and I know others of you, and I know for myself, having people to come alongside in true Christian community, not just, hey, brother, I got your back, brother, I got your back, I'm here for you. No, true community like these things he's talking about We need to experience these things as individuals and as a church so that when, not if, when we experience persecution for our faith, we know exactly who to go to. When we go through difficult times, just in general, But especially in this context, when we're going through times when we know, when we're afraid to speak out for our faith, or when we know we're going to get in trouble if we live out the standard that we claim as Christians, we need others around us. We have to have that true community that says, beyond, I've got your back. No, I get you. I love you. I'm thinking just like you, no matter what these five virtues are incredibly important. Unfortunately, we li- as we all know, we live in a very individ- individualistic society, don't we? We very much so. We long for the benefits of community. I think everybody wants what I just talked about. Everybody wants that kind of deep support. But because we so often feel that we should meet our needs on our own, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we never truly experience the benefits of true community. So many people I know are craving, and I'm sure you do too, that craving the benefits that come with true godly community, yet because they're so, I've just got to do this myself. I'll figure this out. And unwilling to admit failure, unwilling to admit addiction, unwilling to admit mistakes. And then we just live in this perpetual just blah of life. True community says, tell me tell it all. I'm going to accept you no matter what. In Christ's name, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to, we're going to work this together. We're going to watch the Holy Spirit of God work together in our community. So this is the setup, okay? This for, we just did one verse, okay? We're going to be here two hours. Um, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> Now, what Peter does is he addresses the reason that he even wrote this letter in the first place, okay? It's to help his readers understand how to live in a world that not only does not share the same biblical values, but can at times be hostile, hostile to those values due to their commitment of Christ. That's what this letter is all about. That is why now in verse 9... He now addresses believers' relationship primarily with non-believers. Now that he's set us up, what you need, the support system that you need, let's talk about this. Let's talk about how you should deal with non-believers, okay, your relationship with non-believers. He says this in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, remember... Peter has been telling us that we are to endure suffering, insults, and injustice in a way that honors God and in a way that honors other people so that they will, when they see how we respond, they will see the goodness and the grace of God in our lives and they will be drawn to the very source of what is sustaining us. They will want what we have. These thoughts are actually, they're very, they're collaborated by Apostle Paul. Once again, in Romans chapter 12, he says this, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Repay no no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What he's instructing us to do here is to not do what we're most prone to do when we are targets of hostility and insults. And what is that thing when we're targeted? We want to what? Retaliate, right? We want to get them back. That's our natural response. We've all had that feeling probably of wanting to get back at someone for doing something hurtful to us. It's just natural. Even if you didn't follow through with it, it came. That thought happens. Example, a married couple had a quarrel and ended up giving each other the silent treatment. Okay, a week into their mute argument, the man realized he needed his wife's help. In order to catch a flight to Chicago for a business meeting, he had to get up at 5 a.m. Not wanting to be the first to break the silence, he wrote on a piece of paper, please wake me up at 5 a.m., the next morning, the man woke up to discover his wife was already out of bed, and it was 9 a.m., and his flight had long since departed. He was about to find his wife and demand the answers for her failings when he noticed a little piece of paper by his bed, and he read it, and it said, it's 5 a.m., wake up. <laughs> now, now that, that is obviously small, thing compared to enduring suffering and insults from others, especially for our faith. But the principle of how we respond is the same. It's the same thing, okay? We already looked at the example that Jesus gave us. We already looked at this before on how to respond a few weeks ago. Remember, in chapter 2, verses 21 and 23, he said, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. There's that word calling again, called. It's a good word to study leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In this morning's context, this means that not retaliating with the same insults, with the same slander, or the same evil that we, that we are given is actually living out our faith. We're actually living it out when we do that. Can you see how even this plays out practically? <laughs> when was the last time I can think, I, tried, I thought came into my mind, when was the last time you responded in kind to somebody if that abused you and you responded to the same way in kind back to them? Did that diffuse the situation? Heck no! That thing just escalated, didn't it? But that was our response. If you're going to be that way, then I'm going to be that way too. It just, it's, just so it's even it's even practical, you know. The the kind of response that Peter is advocating here breaks the cycle that not only leads to a downward spiral of hurt, but also of also of hostility and pain. He's saying, stop, 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 and, and respond properly. Okay? But now he he tells us not to retaliate when we're the target of hostility and insults, but then he goes a huge step further. (laughs) Peter does not like just to stop when you say, okay, I think I can handle that. I think I could muster it up not to respond negatively. Peter says, "Uh ah, not enough. Take it a step further. He says, we are to bless that person. Oh, Peter, what are you doing to me? Bless that person. And that's not just saying, hey, Bless, see you later. Yeah, okay, that's not, that's not what he's saying. Check this out. This is amazing stuff. The bless here literally means to speak well of that person. Okay? It's the idea of seeking to promote that person's well being. Okay? To bless someone is to extend to that person the, the prospect of salvation. Okay? Or the favor of God. It is expressing the desire for them to experience the same salvation that you have. When was the last time that someone reviled you or said something negative to you or put you down because of your faith, and your immediate response was, I want you to be saved? I can't, I'm gonna do whatever I can. That wasn't mine. But that's what he's saying here. It's amazing to give them the same that we have. This happens when we suffer, when we suffer patiently, when we forgive, when we pray for those that persecute us, that is the blessing that we give to them. Luke chapter six, verse 27 says this, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you wow, wow, that, I've heard that all my life, and I've been a Christian most of my life. I've heard that all my life. But that's still, I, I don't get it. <laughs> that is rough, because that's not a part of our natural way of responding to things. Yet this is precisely, you guys, what the Spirit of God enables us to do when we are fully yielded to Him when we are fully given over to Christ, when we're fully given over to allow the Spirit to do whatever He wants in our life, we are able to do that very thing. But we might think, hey, they don't deserve it. (laughs) They don't deserve it. You know what? You're right. They don't. Neither did we. Neither did you. Neither did I. It's called grace. God's Undeserved favor. As as followers of Jesus, we have been called to extend that same blessing of grace that He extended to us. Again in Ephesians chapter two, by for by grace you have been saved because you are an awesome person. No. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing; it is a gift from God. Why on earth would we think that? Okay, I'm not going to give that to you. You don't deserve it. We didn't deserve it either. Not at all. The blessing of grace is what motivates us to bless others. You see how that? Now you understand. We can take that word "blessing." I get. I get what that is now. That blessing of grace, it's something that God gives that I in turn give to others. And it's not just a pay it forward thing either. This is blessing people by helping them to get what we got, the most incredible gift known to mankind. Came across a story um, this week of a young U.S. Marine recruit who was faithful believer in Christ. And he prayed often and lived his life for the Lord. But because of his strong faith, some of the others in his barracks Uh, resented him and mocked him uh, for his beliefs. So one day after participating in a day of particularly hard marching in the mud, the men returned to their barracks very, very exhausted. After the lights went out, this young recruit knelt down in his bed and began to pray quietly just like he did did every day. Another, Another recruit was tired of this routine, so he picked up his muddy boot and threw it at the praying marine and hit him right in the head. A few others chuckled, Marines chuckled, but the young believer simply set the boot aside and finished his prayer. The next morning when the fellow who had thrown the boot woke up, he noticed his boots had been neatly placed at the end of his bunk bed, cleaned and shined like new. And through that act, that young soldier who threw the boot eventually placed his faith in Christ. That is blessing given, motivated by grace received. Blessing given, motivated purely by grace that was received. Now, this blessing that we followers of Jesus obtain, or in your NIV it says we inherit, um, is the understanding that we are living out the grace given to us, that demonstrates our regenerated identity in Christ. When we do this, when we're able to do that kind of thing because of the power of the Holy Spirit that does that through us, we are just reminded, oh my gosh, I'm a new creature. I am brand new because that's not me. You ever done anything like that before or said something like that or not said something and you go, wow, that wasn't me. And you could really truly trace that back to what God has been doing in your life and what the power of the Holy Spirit has been doing and changing you. That's a wonderful thing. That is a wonderful blessing. Wonderful blessing. Croatian theologian who I've never heard of, and I can barely pronounce his la- name, Miroslav Volf, he writes this. He says, The command to return blessing and good for insult and evil is truly a call to a transformed character. It is the character of a people who refuse to allow their enemies to define them, but who seek their definition In Christ, this is not a pulling up of your bootstraps. I'm just going to be a better person. This is someone who has found their identity in Christ. Now, in the last couple verses here, we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. Peter, what he's doing here now, he's going to give us a scriptural backing for all these instructions. See, Peter's very thorough. He doesn't want to just say, "This is from me." And I'm going to back it up by some things that I know Jesus said. I'm going to give you something bigger. And he's going to reach all the way back into the Old Testament, and he's going to quote a psalm here. And in verses 10 through 12, says this, for whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, Peter, what he's doing here is he's quoting Psalm 34, Psalm Psalm 34, 12 to 16. And in referring to this Psalm, not only is Peter further supporting his teachings on what he just said about what followers of Jesus are called to do, he's telling us that there are consequences there are consequences for both blessing those who mistreat us and insult us and for and there's consequences for repaying them for what they did with just what the same thing that they did. It's probably safe to say that all of us want to enjoy and see good days. We want to enjoy life. We all want that. We want to enjoy our life that we have here. To love life and to see good days, what he's saying here, is an enjoyment of life. It's to experience true contentment and purpose and hope now and in eternity. That's what he's saying. Okay? Peter tells us if you truly want to get the most out of life, to live the life that God intends for us, to live it to the fullest even amidst heartache and amidst struggles, then first we need to guard our tongue, especially when it comes to responding to mistreatment and insults due to our commitment to living out our faith. And this concludes our typing on Facebook. Okay? All of it. There's consequences to these things. And he says, first, guard your tongue. Now, this evil that we are to keep our tongue from here literally means anything that is destructive, bad, useless, or causes any type of injury whatsoever. And this deceit is saying something or anything in order to try to get someone to believe something that isn't true. I think we can all probably think of things like these types of things that we have said or that we have had said to us and how destructive they were. Think back to the times when you said something, those things that we wish we could go, oh, and take back. Or if people have said that were just so destructive and so hurtful. That's what he's saying here. I love this verse, James 3.6. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Oh my gosh, that is wild. But I love, sometimes when I read a verse like that that's just so crazy, I have to go to Eugene Peterson's version of the Message Bible. See, okay, how does this guy, modern day translator, how does he translate? I love what what he says here. He says, by our speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke, and go up in smoke with it, smoke right from the pit of hell. Wow. That's what we can do with our mouth. Amazing. Verse Now, verse 11, Peter goes on to instruct us to turn away from evil and do good and to seek and pursue peace. What he is doing here is he's reminding us that true saving faith will result in doing good works. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. We are to do good works, not to earn favor, because that's an outpouring of what the Spirit of God is doing in us. I love it, it's turn away from evil. That's like That, that same t- concept, turn away, is the same word we use for repent. It's turning from something, to something. So he's saying, turn away from things that you know this is wrong, this is evil, and seek to do good. And I love this. Not only seek peace, but pursue it. Go after it. Run after it. Go get it. Because that will change people's lives. Not preaching to them necessarily. Okay. Okay. Verse verse 12. Well, let me say, first of all, these good works include love and forgiveness and um, things that really demonstrate our changed heart. People will see us and go, why are you responding to people that way? I can't believe it. Because our hearts have been changed last verse, last verse, verse 12, essentially echoes what we talked about last week. If you were here last week, uh, we talked about how Peter tells husbands that they are to understand what godly marriage is to look like by showing honor to their wives. So I love this, so that their prayers will not be hindered. Okay. Or in other words, he says that your spiritual lives will be free to flourish. Okay. Just as with husbands, you guys, just as with husbands, we are all fooling ourselves if we think we can live in disobedience and expect our prayers to be answered or expect our relationship with Jesus to grow. We're crazy. But yet we do that all the time. We're willing to do all sorts of things that aren't too hard, but something where it's really difficult. I, tell, I used to tell students all the time when I work with kids, I said, you want your faith to grow? Allow yourself or put yourself in situations where if God doesn't show up, you're screwed. Not something stupid, not something crazy. Okay, I'm jumping off a cliff. Where's God? Not that kind of thing, but a thing where you're going to serve him and it's beyond, it's scary, but it's beyond what you know with that you can really do on your own flesh. Do that. That's what this is. That's the stuff that he's talking about here. Here that's when our lives will be full. That's when we will sense intimacy with Jesus. That's when community will mean so much to us. In order to be a follower of Jesus and to be able to truly enjoy life and see good days, we are called to return blessing for insult. What this all boils down to is that when faced with unjust treatment or insults for the sake of, of living a Christ-centered life, we must decide whether we're going to respond in kind out of our old, unregenerated nature, or an unredeemed nature, and are we going to perpetuate that cycle of conflict? Or are we going to live out our calling to demonstrate the blessing of God's grace through speech speech? and through conduct that defines who we are in Christ. Like I said at the beginning, as followers of Jesus, we are called to live for something much bigger and grander than what this world tells us that we're to live for. As God's chosen people, people that have been blessed by God's grace, our calling is to proclaim God's grace. Greatness. And one of the ways that we do this is to bless those who persecute or insult us for living out our commitment to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, God, that you give us instructions and commands that, even though they seem impossible, We know that they are completely possible through the power of your Holy Spirit. We know that you have called us to a life that is so much bigger than what we see around us. So God, I pray for each one of us here that you would help us to be bold and to be brave, not in our own strength, but in yours, especially in this area when we are doing things that we know that might be counter to the culture around us and and have a response that's difficult to handle. I pray that you'd give us strength to do that, wisdom to say the right things, wisdom to act the right way, and just a complete joy in living out our salvation. In your son's name we pray. Amen.